it has seemed against all odds that my son has been able to play football this year. Uh, we actually did it. Now, let me tell you why. Because of COVID-19, like all sports are canceled everywhere. It's like, ah, I just want to play sports, do sports, whatever. Uh, but Pop Warner, which is a local tackle football league, they said, we're doing this. We started out in the first of August, okay? And we showed up in these fields and it's hot. And, and we're like taking the boys' temperatures, even though it's 105 degrees in the air. We're like, okay, I guess that works. And we're like spreading out. You ever try to have football practice when you got to be six feet apart? Yeah, that's like done work. But they're conditioning. We did it. We did it. We lasted. We told them, if you're feeling bad, don't come. If you've been somewhere for a while, quarantine yourself. Don't ruin it for the team. And yesterday, we had our second game of the season. It was awesome. And it was really cool to just get out there and play football again. But I'm an assistant coach for the team, so I'm all in the middle of it. But the best part was that we won the game. That's right. Go Bengals. I love you guys. You're doing a good job. And uh, we played against the Colts, and they did a good job too. But we went into overtime and won 26-20 to 20 in overtime, Pop Warner has a little bit of different scoring, so if you keep it up, you're like, how did 26? But uh, man, it, uh, oh, what an exciting game. So much energy. I got to tell you, the, the, the electric energy from the sidelines was great. It was so cool to watch. We're screaming. I'm surprised I even have a voice. But you know what's even more fun to watch? Anytime you go to any youth sporting game is the parents. The parents on the sideline, if you want to see a middle-aged woman lose her mind, okay, I want you to watch a football mom as her son is getting hit by some other kids, like, and you're like, some of them, you want to put pads on them. You're like, let them get out into the field. Let them hit. And a uh, little known fact, one reason why we actually hire officials at sports uh, events for, for youth is, yeah, to enforce the rules and everything. But just in case the mamas get out of, out of hand, you want to have somebody that can kind of keep them in check. Uh, that's enthusiasm. That's excitement. And I open with that story because what I want to talk about this morning is enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Make a note of it. This is important. Uh, we're in this teaching series called Pandemic Hope, and we're actually in the fifth week of this series where we've been trying to just stuff the negativity, man. Get all the fear and the bad stuff. There's a lot going on with COVID and all the other things going on in this world right now, and there's something that God has for us that's bigger, bigger than that. Something more contagious, in fact, and it's hope. So we want to create a pandemic of hope, and we want to spike the curve of that. And each week, we're looking at a biblical principle that will help to build on that. And so, we've talked about things like encouragement. We've talked about gratitude. Last week, we talked about courage. And so, it's just been a really good study. And if we can like, have these things inside of us, they'll they'll take hold, they'll grow, and they'll be contagious. And people can't help but have hope in the love and the salvation that comes from Jesus. This week, we're talking about encouragement because there's hardly anything more contagious. Uh, not encouragement, sorry, enthusiasm. There's hardly anything more uh, enthusiastic, and, and, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm totally messing up my words. There's hardly anything more contagious than enthusiasm. There you go, got it. And you know this if you've ever been to a sports event for, for any kind of sports event. I mean, if you're in the crowd and you're like, defense, defense, who's even playing right now? I don't know. I was just in the crowd and everyone started chanting and I'm in. Enthusiasm is contagious. And there's this enthusiasm about God that we can have that just takes off. And maybe you've known some people like this. The word enthusiasm, I chose it specifically because it's got a pretty cool history. The word enthusiasm comes from two Latin roots, en and theos. 
the word in is like in or into. It's a preposition. And then theos is the word where we get theology. It's, a, it's God. So enthusiasm originally is about this, this mentality of being in God, filled with God or something's coming from God. It's like this whole concept that if somebody was like really pumped about something, like, man, they are inspired supernaturally. You follow that? And so this idea of being enthusiasm is like God's in this. I want to use that as our guide as we talk about enthusiasm. And I'll often and most likely call it entheos. Because if we can build that in theos inside of us, our enthusiasm for what God does in the world is contagious. And people will begin to catch that fire inside of them. Uh, I have to give credit to a, a pastor named Craig Groeschel. Uh, I was just looking for some inspiration and some things about this topic, and I found a sermon he preached earlier this year. And about enthusiasm, this is something he said. This is a quote from him. He said, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who let their circumstances influence their enthusiasm, and then there are those who let their enthusiasm inspire their circumstances. And by the end of this, I think you'll know exactly what I mean. And you're going to know which side you want to land on. Entheos. See, true enthusiasm doesn't have to be a product of your environment. True enthusiasm, that entheos stuff, it's a posture of your heart. It's like, I'm going to choose to be this way because of who God is. And I'm going to let it influence my circumstances. Um, but finding that posture is hard. Like, how do you find that posture? You can't just be encouraged, you know, in, in enthusiastic all the time. You can't just be constantly on your game with energy. And I want to share a couple of scriptures with you this morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in a couple of different places. We're going to start out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's a letter that was written to the church at Corinth. And he says this, uh, that just kind of gets us going. In chapter 15, man, he's really amping up the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And then in verse 57... 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Okay, I just want to leave that scripture up there, and I want to read you this version from uh, the New Living Translation, I believe. They translate it this way. It says, always give yourself, no, back it up, always work enthusiastically for the Lord. They use the word enthusiastically. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. So how do I find that enthusiasm, especially when life gets hard? Well, this says there in verse 58, always give yourself fully to, to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here's what I want to propose to you. It's not about what you do. It's about who you're doing it for. That's where this enthusiasm begins to build. For example, uh, for some reason, and I'm not sure why, my wife, Lindsay, loves, she loves this. She loves it. When someone is finished using the bathroom in our hallway and they leave, that they turn the light off. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I suspect it's genetic. I've known my mother-in-law for over 20 years, and she too has an affinity for them lights being off. If the light's on and no one's in the room, it's like, what is wrong with you? Now, it's, <laughs> it doesn't matter uh, to my wife where she is or what she's doing. She can, I, I believe if she was in a treehouse in South Carolina, okay, and I come out of the bathroom without turning the light on, she'd be like, something Hey, Chris, is the bathroom light on? Will you check? Like, she just knows. She knows that it's on all the time. Now, me, I could take it either way. You know, I'm fine. Like, light's on. It's fine. That's why we buy those high-efficiency light bulbs. It's a really big, it's, that's why I have, turn them off, that's great. Saves me money. You know, I use electricity. I get it. 
But you know what I do my best to do? Turn my light off when I leave the bathroom. In fact, this, this I mean, I'll be in the bathroom, and I'll just like, <sighs> click. And I walk in the living room all smug, like, <clears throat> hey, babe, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, you know that bathroom, uh, you know the light in there? Well, look, after I picked up my dirty clothes and I hung the towel on the rack and I made sure the lid was on the toothpaste, <laughs> turn the light off, just want to let you know, flex a little bit, you know, because... You know, she loves that thing. It's not, it's not about what I'm doing. It's about who I'm doing it for. And to be fair, my wife is great about doing that kind of stuff for me, too. She knows things that I care about, and she's going to, and that's quick marriage advice for you. You know, like just read between the lines there. There's some things that you could probably do to really help build that. It's not what you do that makes it important. It's who you're doing it for, and it's you can find an enthusiasm for that. Here's the point. When you're doing whatever you do, if you can do it for the Lord, it can transform something that's normally mundane into something beautiful, an act of worship, because we're doing it for God. A few years ago, I met this guy named David. I was working uh, with Vigilant Hope. They do a lot of ministry in our city with uh, people in poverty and in homelessness. And David was a friend that we met there who was, I don't know his whole story at the time, but he was in, in, in a hard situation, okay? He was being served by that ministry, and he also serves with that ministry. It's a great story. Uh, I met him, and it was cool to meet David, but I saw him a little bit later that year, and you might have seen him too if you live in Wilmington. Uh, I was at Walmart. It was around Christmas time, and there was a guy ringing the bell for the Salvation Army, and this guy was just singing Christmas songs, and he had a beautiful baritone voice, and it's like, man, this guy's so happy. Like, he's killing it right now, and I realized it was my friend David. Well, that year, one of our local news stations uh, caught wind of, of David's awesome energy at the front door of Walmart, and they did a story on him, and the interviewer asked him, they said, what is it that draws you to volunteer your time and come out here and sing like this? And I'm going to quote what David said. He said, I get joy out of singing because that's the gift that God gave me. So I try to sing his praises, and if it brings people joy, and it touches their hearts, and it makes them want to give to help other people, then I'm doing what God told me to do. This is a guy who, when I met him, he was being served by a ministry that helps homeless people, okay? Also, he was at Walmart. Raise your hand if you avoid Walmart at Christmas, okay? Like, he was there on purpose. This is not someone who was letting their circumstances influence their enthusiasm. But instead, there was something inside of him. I believe it was entheos, enthusiasm, that overflowed and to influence his circumstances. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul also says this. This is Colossians 3, and we're going to read a little bit more of this later. But he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. It's not what you do. It's who you're doing it. For. And I believe that if we can be filled with a love for God and an understanding of who he is in this world, and we can seek to do everything with all our heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, that enthusiasm is going to bubble out of us, and it's going to be contagious. And no matter what our world is going through, people are going to be drawn to you and say, I want to know what's going on in your life. In the time we have left, I want to take a look at the life of another David. He's actually in the Bible. You might know King David. We're going to be, uh, if you don't know the story of David, it's in First in, uh, and Second Samuel, so go check that out. Read the whole, both books, fantastic. You should read them both back to back. They're great stories about God's people. Uh, because if anyone had a God-driven enthusiasm, it was this guy. It was David. It was King David. I think that we can learn a lot about that entheos from him. And so the question I want to kind of start with is, 
where did he get that in Theos from? Where does he get that enthusiasm, that desire that no matter how hard life was, he was going to serve God? I propose that there might be three areas of his life where we can learn from. I'm just going to give them all to you right now, right quick. These are the three things. I believe it was because he trusted God daily. I believe it was because he walked with God daily. And I believe it was because he worshiped God daily. Things he did daily. He trusted God. He walked with God. He worshiped God. And so just leave that up there. And we're going to kind of go through those real quick. Because if you don't know the story of David, uh, you got to see that he is like, he stands heads and shoulders above other people throughout world history of trusting God in really difficult times. First, he trusted God daily. How do we know that? Well, when we first meet David, he's a young shepherd boy. He's tending his flocks. And we see there's some crazy moments where he has to fend off some big beast, a lion and a bear, okay? And in each of those situations, he trusted God and he took care of business and he took care of his sheep. But he gave God the glory for that. Now, trusting God in those smaller things, which I would argue are not very small. I don't know how many of you have ever fought a lion. I have not, personally. But trusting them on those daily things allowed him to have the faith in God and the enthusiasm in one of his more famous stories when he fought Goliath. We'll talk more about Goliath's story in just a minute. But man, this is a big, giant guy. And he's like, I'm going to take him on. Boom. And he runs in and he fights. He trusted God daily with small things and with big things. Second thing we said, he walked with God daily. This is the guy who wrote the 23rd Psalm. Okay. So I'll read a little bit of it to you. You might be familiar with it. Maybe saw it cross-stitched at your grandma's house somewhere. This is a great passage to memorize. Psalm chapter 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will feel no evil, for you're with me. This is someone who understands what it means to walk with God daily. Whether it's scary, he calls it a valley of the shadow of death. That's a whole concept you can understand from their culture. And if it's like, but God's with me. He walked with God daily. He trusted God daily. And lastly, he worshiped God daily. There's this one story where uh, the Ark of the Covenant, this is kind of like the biggest gift God ever gave to the nation of Israel. It was basically, it represented his presence among them, okay? Well, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen in battle by another nation, but it was retrieved and it was being brought back to the city of Jerusalem, okay? And David finds out that the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem, and the dude runs out into the street. Basically, this is the uh, new American, like modern American translation that I'm going to paraphrase. He basically runs out into the street in his underwear, okay? And he is dancing in the street before God because he's so excited. The people around are like, is that our king? Like, what is he shouldn't be doing that in the street. His wife got really upset at him. Like, why are you doing this? Again, to paraphrase David, he says this. He says, listen, I will become even more undignified than this because I'm not concerned with my dignity. I'm concerned with worshiping God right now. I don't think that gives us all permission to go dance in the street in our underwear, but I think it does show us that when we have enthusiasm for God in our heart, we just, we don't have the inhibition that comes when we're not filled with him. We don't have that in theos. He trusted him daily. He walked with him daily. He worshiped him daily. Now, do you think that David did all these things perfectly all the time every day? No. No, no, no. There's no way. He was human, and it's clear that he made a lot of mistakes. We're going to talk about some of those. He didn't. He didn't do them perfectly daily. But we find that when he was doing those things, his enthusiasm for God and his ability to worship and stay steadfast was, was there. It was strong. I want to talk to you this morning, guys, for real. Listen up. If, if you feel like you don't have enthusiasm for God right now, Aaron just said something a minute ago that was really powerful. He talked about the song. And man, I, when I first heard this song, This is Amazing Grace, is that the one you were on? Like when I first heard this song, it blew my mind and I love to worship. And now I'm a little bit bored by it. Like that happens all the time. 
We lose our enthusiasm. If you're feeling like right now, like, man, I just don't know that I have an enthusiasm for God. We've called it a fire before, you know? Or maybe you've never had it in the first place. Or maybe you had it and you lost it. I want to let you know something. That's normal. People come to me. I'm a pastor. I'm a leader in church circles. And people say, Chris, I don't know how you keep the energy you have. I don't know how you, like, keep on worshiping God. I don't know how you have the enthusiasm all the time. And I got a simple answer for you guys. I don't. I'm looking at a group of people right here, a handful of you know that. Like, you see me when I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I have seasons where it's like it's hard to find that fire, whether it's hours or days or weeks, months. And in these seasons where I've struggled to find that entheos, I hope that it helps you to know that's normal. <laughs> like, that happens. And David dealt with it too. There are three big phases in, in David's life that I want to kind of jump through real quick, kind of skip a rock through David's whole life. Because there was a season where David had enthusiasm for God in Theos. And then he lost it. And then he found it again. Because I think this is a model that we can all learn from. And we can all build the enthusiasm in our own lives for God. Uh, let's talk about when he had it. We had. I told you when he fought Goliath. Okay, so here's the scenario. If you haven't read the story about David and Goliath, go check it out. Google it. Story about David and Goliath. You can read the Wikipedia version and get a really good feel for it. Go check it out on the Bible. You need to know the David and Goliath story. Okay, it's important. This is what's happening. The Philistines are kind of coming up to the Israelites. They're having this big battle, and they have this champion named Goliath. He's just a big, brawny man, and he gets out on the front lines. And he starts talking smack about the living God. And he talks smack about his people, the Israelites. He's like, won't anyone face me? I tell you what, if you can send out your greatest warrior and face me, if you win, y'all win the battle. If I win, we win, and we take over, right? And so there's this big challenge. And so David's out on the front lines. He's got a job out there. He's taking some lunch to his brothers or whatever, and he's out there, and he's like looking around, and David's talking smack. I mean, Goliath's talking smack, and everybody's kind of shaking in their boots, and he's just like, y'all just going to let this dude talk like that about our God? And about our king? And about our nation? What? And he's like, will anybody fight me? And David's like, nobody? I will. He was a young man or a boy at the time. And with full confidence, this kid walks out onto the field with a slingshot and a handful of rocks, takes care of business, and he gives glory to God in the process. That's enthusiasm. Like, I don't know if we can fully comprehend the thing he faced there with the enthusiasm, that entheos. He had it. He had it. But then he lost it. Um, we fast forward through David's life. Eventually, he, he is anointed as king. And it's a pretty cool story uh, by, uh, by the prophet named Samuel. And um, like at first, the king who was in place, like he didn't really want to give up his throne because kings don't generally like to do that. And most of the nation was like, uh, we're not going to recognize this new king. So in, in David's first like term as king, like, he was actually on the run. He was hiding from Saul's army, and he was hiding out in caves. And he was hiding in fields. It was a rough life. He kept his enthusiasm through most of that. And he makes some good friends, and he makes some good decisions, and it's really good. Eventually, he gets into the palace, though. And he takes over in full, and the nation adopts him as their king. They're like, yeah, we love David. And then something starts to happen. He starts to get comfortable. And guys, I got to tell you something. Comfort can be one of the biggest enemies of our faith. When we start to find comfort, and it can kill our enthusiasm for God. He gets comfortable, and we find one of his most famous stories as well. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, this is where it all falls apart. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, that's his general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. 
But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, from a international or like a, you know national pride standpoint, that was really good. The army did great. They went out. They won. They won. They did good. And in those times, that was a really important thing. Verse two. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, here's the deal. Some really good things have just happened for the nation. But David, you see the very first verse, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Many people believe that was a very intentional phrase. Like, David should have been off at war with his army, but he wasn't. Okay, so David was in a place that he shouldn't have been. And he ends up doing something he shouldn't have done. He ends up seeing something that he shouldn't have seen. I'll paraphrase the rest of the story. He goes up walking on the roof of the palace, and he sees down over one of the walls. He sees uh, a young woman, and she is bathing herself in her own privacy, but he can see because of his vantage point. And that catches his attention, and it piques his interest, and he's like, hmm. Puts in a phone call to somebody, I guess, and gets her to come over. And one thing leads to another, and he ends up sinning with this woman. He commits adultery, and, ah, man, he sins against God. He sins against his wife. David was already married at the time. He sins against this woman. Her name was Bathsheba, by the way. She was married. So she sins against her husband. He sins against her husband. Bathsheba becomes pregnant in this time. And so now there's an innocent child dragged into this whole mess. And then David tries to hide it. And because he's the king, he can kind of pull off anything he wants to. So he actually sneaks off Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, off uh, to a dangerous place in the war and has him killed on the front lines. It's a mess. And during this time period, we know that David stopped spending time with God. He stops walking with God. He stops trusting God. And he loses that in theos. He had it. Now he's lost it. And I got to borrow another uh, phrase from this uh, Craig Rochelle sermon. Uh, <laughs> he says this, as a kid, with enthusiasm, David runs onto the battlefield to fight for his God. But as a king... With enthusiasm, he walks up onto a roof to serve his comfort. He took his eyes off of his calling, and he puts it on his comfort. And maybe you can relate to that. I mean, when times get hard, whether it's because of COVID-19, or let's be honest, life has been hard forever. I mean, this story is, you know, thousands of years old. When times get hard, I mean, there's really two big reactions we tend to have. Some people will pull towards God for strength. And some people will drift towards complacency. And they'll replace a calling with comfort. Times are hard. I need, I need comfort. I need to, and we lose our connection with God. And the enthusiasm for him can't be found. David had it. Then he lost it. I remember when I was nine years old, man, I came home from a summer camp. It was a church camp uh, that our kids from Venture go to still today. I mean, I came home nine years old. I was pumped up for Jesus. They told me all about his love. They told me that I could go to heaven. They told me the life I could live for him. So when I got home, man, I told my dad, I got baptized at church the next Sunday, man. I got reading my Bible. I was reading that whole thing. Like, Mama, can I get some post-it notes? I'm trying to read this Bible. I volunteered to help teach uh, Sunday school for some of the younger kids. It's like, I want them to know. They got to know this. I was pumped, nine years old. But guess what happened? Life. And I began to move on. And, 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 and it began this roller coaster of rises and dips of I've got the enthusiasm for God and I lost it. And I'm distracted and I want to be comforted. I remember high school. I remember periods in college. I remember periods in my 20s. I'm 38 years old now. Guess what? Those periods still come. And there are moments where I'm like, yeah, but this over here is tempting. Or this over here is, uh, is, is something I want to check out. And this over here is, uh, is comfortable. But I found great comfort in knowing that God never leaves me. Here's the thing. When we lose that 
feeling we have with God, it's not because he left us. In fact, I found that when I turn around, he's like right there, <laughs> closer than I could have ever realized and more ready than ever to embrace me in forgiveness and renewal. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, there's an angel, and he's talking to the church at Ephesus. I love the book of Revelation. There's some great just uh, word for the church there. And this is what he says to that church in Ephesus. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Think about nine-year-old Chris. If you're a believer now, think about the moment you first learned about God's love. If maybe you don't really know where you stand with God right now, but just hearing this, you're like, I think I want to know more about God's love. Like, think about that feeling you have right now. And this is what the, the angel says to the church at, at, at Ephesus. He says, you, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Go back to the drawing board. Get back right with God. What do you do when you lose something important? Your wallet, your keys. What do you do? You look for them really hard. I ask my wife. She normally knows. <laughs> and what's the question we always get, or someone always asks us? Well, where's the last place you had it? Okay, there's some good spiritual advice in that. And it might have been at the very beginning. It might have been last week. It might have been a mountain-type experience. It might have been one of those bottom-of-the-barrel experiences where you're like, I found God there. We've got to return to that stuff. The prophet Nathan walks up to David and lays into that dude. <laughs> He's like, do you realize what you've done? And David's like, yes. <laughs> Nathan says, you need to repent. Get back right with God and pursue him with your heart. And David does. Psalm chapter 51, I want to take you there because Psalm chapter 51 is this poem that David wrote in the bottom of the barrel, okay? And it's one that I return to often when I find myself surrounded by temptation or I've fallen into sin or I find myself just not encouraged and want to be doing stuff that I should be doing or whatever, you know? This is something you can read as a prayer, but this is what I said. I'm just going to start with the first two verses. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We'll skip ahead to verse 10. This is a beautiful prayer. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. That's huge. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Help me want it. Help me need it. Help me long for it. And theos. David had it. And he lost it. And he could have stayed there. But he found it again. You know, it wasn't all like rainbows and unicorns after that. David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba, they, they lost that baby. It was hard. That's a hard story. David was a mess. Read it. It's in there. David eventually takes uh, Bathsheba to be his wife because he left her a widow. But you know what he does? He takes that little family and he turns them back to God. He takes his position as a king. He turns the nation Back to God. He had made a big mistake. But God restores David. And you know what David starts doing again? He starts trusting God daily. He starts walking with God daily. He starts worshiping God daily. And this daily thing is important, guys. I'm so glad that you're watching online right now. You guys are hanging out with me, and I'm talking to myself as much as anybody. But it wasn't like David went to online church for an hour once a week. 
It wasn't like, man, you know what I need every week? I need to go to a church in person with people so I can have sing some songs and get some, and get some teaching. Like, that's great. That's good. But we've got to put that stuff in us every day. Being in God's word, serving with his people, trusting with him, walking with him, worshiping him daily. daily. And so at the end of David's life, what happens? Well, though he wasn't perfect, David does not go down, and his, his legacy is not David, the king who made a big knucklehead of mistake and, 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 and committed adultery and had some guy murdered and all stuff. I mean, yeah, we, we are quick to bring that up when we talk about David's life, and I think it's important. We need to see both sides of who he was. But his legacy, what he's known as, is David, a man after God's own heart. I love what Luke writes about David in Acts chapter 13. He says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. What a eulogy. I hope that one day someone can say of me, when Chris had served God's purpose in his own generation, he was buried. What greater thing could we strive for? And Theos, he had it, he lost it, but he found it again, and God honored that. And he will for you too. And that gets me excited. It gets me excited to see what God promises for all of us. And I hope that it can build an enthusiasm in you as you hear about it right now. It's huge. It builds. That's what happens when God comes into someone's life and renews them and restores them. And enthusiasm is contagious. It's like fire. It spreads. It's like being in the stands, cheering for the home team, and you're pumped if they're winning. And when they're losing, you're still rooting for them because you want them to be in the game. That's enthusiasm, and that's what we guys can bring to this world in this crazy time. That's what pandemic hope is all about when we talk about it. Earlier, we saw in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. That's a big deal. Like even in the mundane, we can find this beautiful act of worship. But I want to look at another place in Colossians chapter 3 as kind of a closing encouragement to all of us. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The world is crazy. Guess what? Nothing's new. Under the sun. The world has always been crazy. But as the people of God, and people specifically who know about his salvation in Jesus, we don't have to let our circumstances influence our encouragement and drain it out. Instead, we can be filled in theos with God, and it can overflow enthusiasm into our circumstances and make a difference for the people around us. We spike the curve of hope in this world. That's enthusiasm. Let's pray, guys.